Hey, welcome. It has been quite a while since the last episode, which got published back in August. <clears throat> After that, uh, I came back from vacation and got utterly swamped with work. <clears throat> and just uh, felt like I just could not keep up and devote uh, the right amount of time to the podcast. So I apologize for the long hiatus. We'll call that season one, right? <laughs> and we'll call this season two. How about that? Make it look like it was planned, but it wasn't planned. It was just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just got overwhelmed with work. So I apologize if you were uh, waiting around. You probably weren't waiting around, right? There's plenty of other stuff to listen to. But anyway, um, I did do an interview um, back then, right, right around that time, uh, with what I'm going to air today, which is an interview with Chris Brokaw. Um, great guitar player, well, multi-instrumentalist. Um, I've been a fan of bands that he's been in for a long time, um, you know, since probably 90, 91. First time I heard his work was with the group Codeine, and then he went on to be in Come, and he did solo work, and then he was in New Year. So we talk about all those projects and kind of how he um, crisscrossed paths with the various guys in those bands, um, his upbringing, stuff like that, you know, schooling and stuff like that. Um, I do want to point out, though, there was one point where I mentioned uh, Gerard Cosley's uh, current label, and I called it 12XU. It's, of course, 12XU. <laughs> but for a long time, I kept calling it 12XU. Um, but it's a reference to a wire song, I think, uh, which is definitely called 12XU. So I apologize for that. But anyway, uh, yeah, Chris was a, a great um, guest. Um, I, I didn't know him at all beforehand. I kind of just randomly reached out to him. Um, and he was kind enough to do the interview with me and, and put up with my uh, lack of professional interview um, antics. So, <laughs> so let's get to it. Uh, I'm going to play a few tracks from uh, Chris's work. Um, probably going to start with uh, Codeine and Come, I think. Gonna get some solo work in there as well, and then some more recent work and new year work and stuff like that. So I'm gonna play a few tracks, and then we're gonna get in an interview, and then after the interview, I'll play a few more tracks, kind of like the format for the other the other interview uh, episodes. So uh, thanks again for um, bearing with me and checking this one out. I do have another interview that I'm working on right now that I hope to get out within the next week or two from Tom Lax, uh, head of uh, Silt Breeze Records. So I did an interview with him a, f a little while ago, um, and I've been editing that, so I'm going to get that up there. And then I have a bunch of music episodes, music-only episodes that I'm going to be getting up there. I'm going to try to get onto a schedule with the podcast. Um, I'd like to stick to a two-week schedule. We'll see if that works or not. But anyway, uh, let's get to it. Oh, by the way, you're listening to the My Teeth Need Attention podcast. <laughs> guess I should mention it at the top. All right, enjoy.
All right. I want to welcome uh, Chris to the podcast. The podcast is called uh, My Teeth Need Attention. I don't know if you're familiar. It's a Dead Sea reference from a song called Power that the Dead Sea did years ago. Okay. Um, so, yeah, right. thanks, thanks, to the, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And I, I, I assumed that maybe it was some sort of brotherhood of people with terrible dental or periodontal problems. Which I'm definitely a member of. So I was a mess when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> I'm not much better now, but like seven years of braces, <laughs> seven and a half, something like that, um, kind of helped me out a little bit. But yeah, I, I would say it's it's my my one um, perennial um, health issue, but. Um, Things, things seem to be stable at the moment. So it's <laughs> good. Knock on wood. I, I didn't know that beforehand. I didn't pick it for that reason. Just saying so you know. that. Somehow you knew. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's, I guess let's start with uh, where you grew up. Um, you live in the Boston area now, right? Cambridge. Did you grow up in that area or? No, I, I grew up outside of New York City. And, um, about a, a half hour north of Manhattan and um, and went to college in Ohio. And then after college, I moved to Boston and I've spent most of my adult life living in Boston. I mean, I, I lived in, I lived in Brooklyn for a few years and I lived in Seattle for six or seven years, but most of the rest of the time I've been here in Boston. Okay. And Ohio, you went to uh, Oberlin, was yep. that it, right? Yeah, I thought I read about that. Um, did, did you go to there for music, to Oberlin? No, I, I was studying English, but I, I was definitely, when I chose the school, I was definitely cognizant that it, it had a, a strong music department and, I mean, a great conservatory, but, but also that it, it seemed to have a lot of interesting things musically happening on campus which which was really true when i was there i, I saw um tons of cool stuff that i i don't think i would have seen i don't know it was you know it's just there, there was just cool music stuff happening on campus all the time they would you know you, you would be walking across campus and you'd see a little flyer that says like oh there's gamelon music at four o'clock and you know, in, in like a teeny little room in a dorm. And it would be like the best Balinese gamelan ensemble, like, you know. From, from Bali, like. Yeah, like not, they, would, yeah, they would just, they would have, you know, they'd bring stuff in and yeah. So there was, there was tons of really very high level stuff available there if, if, if you wanted. To. Yeah, wow, that's great. Yeah, it was cool. This was like mid eighties, right? You're in, you're a little older than me, I think. Yeah. This was like early to mid eighties. Okay. Did you, were you playing music at the time? Did you start uh, in like in middle school or high school or? Yeah, I started playing guitar when I was 12 and drums when I was 13. And I played in some bands when I was in college. And uh, yeah, I started, yeah, I started playing in bands when I was probably 14. Okay. And in college, uh, what kind of stuff were you guys playing? 
I was in this one band called Pay the Man that was, um, I don't know, it was like, it was fairly melodic, but, um, but we were, I mean, we were really into, um, we were really into the Bad Brains and, and Buzzcocks. And so kind of a mix of, of being, like we were super into hardcore music, but but also really melodic stuff as well. So maybe, maybe it was like a blend of those two things. Mm-hmm. And it was originals or? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. We, we, didn't, we never released anything, but, um, but it was, it was, it was a cool band. Was there a lot of bands like what, Oberlin? What is it like uh, having a conservatory there? Was there still a lot of like rock bands and punk bands playing or were most of the music school kids just concentrating on, you know, kind of classical or, you know, real regimented programs? I don't know. I mean, I, I, the people who were playing in bands were mostly playing rock music. Um, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I think the, the classical music people that I met there were just studying um, the classics. I mean, yeah. I was, I was, I mean, I was also introduced to, you know, like 20th century um, contemporary classical music, but I, I wasn't aware of people who were, you know, writing that stuff or, or performing that stuff or, or, or anything like that. And, and it, it's funny because um, in the years since I've been that, I, I know that for a while Oberlin was, was really sort of a hotbed of, of noise music and, and, and stuff like that, you know, like I think Aaron Dillaway has a record store there and, yeah. and, and everything. So, um, but there was, there was nothing like that going on when, when I, that I was aware of. I, I yeah. Should, yeah. Yeah. Um, when, when, when I was there, it was really, it was mostly rock bands and funk bands. And um, some people I knew were really into go-go music, which was kind of like, like some DC for friends from DC. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, and that was sort of the heyday of, of trouble funk and, and stuff like that. So there was a go-go band. Yeah. I went to, I came to, I moved here to Rochester, New York for school. And, um, you know, we had basically cover bands on campus and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> Until I, uh, I, there was like a, uh, one band that started like floating in an original once in a while or like a jam band who would just kind of improv and jam off of, you know, some other cover songs they were doing. And then, uh, I met a couple of people and I tried to learn how to play bass and, you know, I couldn't play other people's songs. So we made up our own. Yeah. <laughs> that was never, I never quite was, good enough. So. No, it was, it was cool. There was, there was definitely the, I mean, I guess there were some cover bands there, but mostly it just, it just seemed like everyone was writing stuff and, and, and doing their own songs. So it was cool. Were you, were you aware of the, like the Columbus and Cleveland scenes that were going on. I mean, around that time, that's kind of pretty heyday for Ohio, you know, punk or yeah. post-punk or whatever you'd call it. But. Yeah, not not so much Columbus, but I, I started going to Cleveland and seeing shows there. And then my, my band, Pay the Man, started playing there as well. And, and I met some really met some really awesome people there. Um, um, I met the guys in Death and Samantha when they were, I mean, when they were just like putting out their first seven inch and, and their, and then their first album. And, and so I saw those guys a lot. And, and I mean, 
you know, I'm still friends with Doug Gillard and John Pekovic and um, super cool guys. And, you know, like uh, Chris Andrews, who um, ran the record store there and, and put on put on a lot of shows and, um, you know, played a lot with, with the offbeats. Um, I saw Spike and Vane. Um, so Spike and Vane actually played an Oberlin and, um, and, and were amazing. And they, their album Diseases Relative came out on this label, Trans Dada Records that I think, I feel like Pay the Man was talking with them, but I don't, I don't know. We, we, we never, we just didn't have our shit together, but, um, um, yeah, so I, I saw, I saw a lot of stuff in Cleveland and, and met some really, met some really awesome people. Um, and I, and we, when we played a little bit in Youngstown and there's this club there called the Cedars and we met this band called the Trash Boys who were like really great, um, sort of hardcore, sort of country, just like total sleaze balls, you know, just like they would just like split like a bottle of Valium and like a, like a case of beer and go on. There was like kind of chaotic, but the guitar player, Curtis Harvey became a really good friend of mine. And, and he started that band Rex. Yeah. And yeah. Curtis and I, and you know, we had that band Pullman did a couple of records together. So Curtis was in this band trash boys who were like, um, like a, they were like amazing sort of train wreck. Yeah, great. <laughs> he grew up in that area, or yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, where Youngstown's uh, towards Pittsburgh, right? Is that where Youngstown is? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's not a whole lot else, right? <laughs> Up there, no. Yeah. And, and, and you know, when when we were hanging out there, Youngstown was. I mean, it was it was definitely part of that. Um, rust belt that was just it was like deserted yeah 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 curtis and i curtis and i stood one one time in the middle of downtown youngstown like i mean like in the middle of the street in like the heart of youngstown at five in the afternoon and like there was no cars <laughs> there's no people it's like it looks like a fucking it was like a neutron bomb had gone off so yeah it was it was very it was crazy so I, yeah, I, I got a little education about sort of the Midwest blight. If you, yeah, if you, yeah. Uh, uh, after school, is that when you kind of landed in New York? I moved to Boston after Boston. That. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, sort of, sort of on a lark. We uh, pay the man had had done a few shows on the East Coast, and we played at the Rat with um, the Flies. And the Turbines, who were, I, I really love both those bands. And um, we had a really fun show with them at the Rat. And I was like, wow, Boston's kind of cool. So a little cluster of us kind of just moved there after college. My first, I think, exposure to you was uh, Codeine, right? Yeah. You were in one well, on the first record, right? First two. First two. Okay. So were you living in Boston and just kind of commuting? Or were you down in New York at that time? Yeah, I was, I was living here. But um, I had met Steve Imrevar at, he went to Oberlin as well. And so I, I, oh, I, okay. knew, I knew him there, there, but really we have a mutual friend, Sue Young Park from Bitch Magnet and Seam and stuff. Mm -hmm. And 
So Young gave me a tape of some of the stuff that Steve was working on. Did So Young go to Oberlin as well? Yes, he did. Wow, that's a all right. This is a yeah, hub <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, this he, is the map the map that people have done with right. Uh, you know, Kentucky, Chicago, North Carolina, Virginia. There's, yeah. there's the, I'm yeah, seeing I'm seeing a little there's <laughs> a little Oberlin mid eighties map. Yeah, but and yeah, he's he's on it. So. Um, so Young had so Young put out like a compilation tape of of a bunch of stuff, mostly of of friends of his at Oberlin who were doing stuff, which included a few songs that Steve had written, which I I really liked a lot. And I guess I told Su Young that, and it got back to Steve, and then Steve got in touch with me and asked if I would be interested in participating in this thing that he that he wanted to do. Um, that was going to be called Codeine. And Steve had played in a band called the Lilies, not not the Lilies that everybody knows, but a, a, a different Lilies a guy named Jeremy Engel playing guitar. And Steve ended up meeting Jeremy's brother John, who became the guitar player in Codeine. Who was the Steve moved to New York after Oberlin, so uh, he really wanted to do something with John. And they asked me to be involved. And initially I was gonna play second guitar and this guy, Mike McMacken, who produced all our records, was gonna be the drummer. And then ultimately we just decided it would be easier to have just three people rather than four. So I became the drummer. I played guitar on the records as well, but mm -hmm. that, was, that was how we went with it. Was, uh, were like both of those instruments as strong, like, I knew you as a drummer and then you started playing guitar later. I think I probably knew you played guitar in a record too, but um, like, do you think yourself a, as a drummer or a guitar player or both? Uh, I think I'm probably stronger as a guitar player than as a drummer. Um, that's, that's sort of the, the, the simplest answer. Okay. Like, but you know, it's like, People always need drummers, so yeah. you know, it's like, like if you can play drums at all, like that's how that's how I took up drums. You know, it's like you know you can always find cool people to play with. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I I I like drumming a lot. And, I don't know. Yeah, I was but, floored by how sparsely you played on those records and the slowness of it. Right. You know, and you uh, yeah, it was very tasteful all the time and even you know i was like i don't know your first record came out in 91 i'm guessing yeah right so i'm 21 stupid kid listen to you know whatever tons of stuff and this comes out on sub pop and i'm like you know it's not sub pop ish no. right? whatever that meant at the time but you know it was <laughs> pretty different um yeah me and my my bandmate at the time we were floored by it we're like what is this oh that's uh, cool what, I mean, was it mainly Steve's kind of, uh, like, idea, uh, the style? Or yeah, I think, I think Steve had, had the idea for that music and, and how it was going to go. And then I think the three of us sort of worked out how that was actually going to happen. And um, through... Um, long, um, often very heated conversations, <laughs> and argue. I don't know. It's like like we really 
think it was three people with uh, strong opinions about about stuff. But I mean, for real, like I, I, I learned so much about music and, and playing music and, and constructing rock music from those guys, like really, really idiosyncratic views on um, on what's effective in, 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 in rock music. And, and, and we talked a lot about, you know, like what the role of bass guitar is and, and what the role of snare drum is and, and you know, like what's, which is supposed to be the rhythmic element and which is supposed to be the, the melodic element. And, and um, so we, we sort of went things, we went over everything with a fine tooth comb. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, so it was, it was, so it was, it was very, it was very deliberate. It was very specific. And, um, and like, as a drummer, it was, it was, the first six months was not easy. And then, and then, it, <laughs> and then like, like my metabolism shifted <laughs> or, or like, I don't know, some, something, something shifted. And, uh, and I was able to do it, I think, effectively. Yeah. It, I mean, it came across as incredibly natural sounding. <laughs> so that's, that's Good. pretty, that's pretty uh, kind of surprising that it was so, you know, contrived, you know, like deliberate, um, uh, but it I works. Contrived yeah. and deliberate are very different words, but, but yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah. it was a very specific plan. You know, it wasn't just, you know, sometimes some bands just get, get together and what they play is what they play. You know, it's, it's just sort of the no, it was, co- it was, combination of three guys styles. Yeah. And no, yeah. no, no. I, I, yeah, I, I get that. And it's, um, and it's interesting because in 1988, Steve released this compilation tape called Big Heads Burst. And it had um, had several different bands on it. Um, there was one called uh, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome that was kind of I can't even describe what that music was like. There was there was one um, One Eyed Cat was this sort of like Jesus and Mary Chain type sounding thing, and there was another thing that was like sort of really pretty sort of quiet ballads. And then there was, um, actually, yeah, I think KFS was more sort of like early British industrial type, like SPK type stuff. So it was all, it was all these different things. And it was all Steve. And so, and... Like playing everything? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I don't know, maybe Sue Young might have played on something, but, but basically, basically it was all Steve. And then there were three songs in the sort of codeine style. And so just, just as a fan of his writing, I sort of, you know, I sort of look at it and be like, like Steve, like kind of had like, like, I don't know, six or seven different ways that he could have gone. He was just like this one. And it's like, <laughs> and he, you know, and he was, this is the one that I'm going to do. And, uh, and I think that he had he had a really specific idea, and and he said to me when when we started playing together, he said, "I, I don't, 
I don't imagine this band lasting more than like a year and a half or, or two years or something. Just just kind of like get in, like do what we're going to do and, and then get out. And I mean, the band ended up lasting about five years. But then, I mean, that's that's what he did. I mean, he like band broke up in 94 and he stopped playing music. As did John. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think about it, and I, yeah, I didn't come across anything of theirs after that. Yeah. Huh. Uh, what were, I don't know if, how much you want to talk about Codeine in this, but how, what were the first shows like? <laughs> like, did the, did the crowd get it, or were they like, what are these guys doing? Um, I, I mean, not, not, to, not to say the music is completely out there, but at the time, uh, you know, no one was playing like slow like that. Um, at, at the time, um, at the time that like the people who got it, like really got it. And, and there were plenty of other people who were like, we don't know what the fuck you're doing. And you know, you, you guys are freaks. And, um, I mean, especially like the, the first, the first European tour that we did where where we were being advertised as you know like this new band on sub pop and we were i mean us and yeah and uh and i mean us and beat happening were really the first bands on sub pop that didn't sound like mud honey or or, right. or whatever so i don't know maybe like half the nights people people knew the record and they were like and like they were super into it and and the other half of the nights would be people expecting it us to be Soundgarden or something. And, and they were like, what the fuck is this? So, um, yeah, so it, it was, I mean, it's hard for me to be objective now because I, I listen to it now and, it, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't sound that weird to me and it doesn't sound that odd. I think sort of musically given what's, what's come since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time it was, it was definitely polarizing. Right. Which, right. which was fine, which was fine with us. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those okay. Yeah, I mean, some of those, you know, I was buying everything on Sub Pop back then. My favorite records still to date are the Outliers. They're your records and Rain Sanction. Oh, cool. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, I love Rain Sanction. You know, and, and that's an example, I think, of three guys who just were probably totally isolated. And what came out was organically, you know exactly what they did yeah Yeah. you know what i mean like yeah yeah yeah, they're kind of yeah they're they were a lot like the meat puppets in in that way and and had that that really sort of like sort of like three brothers type of right right Right. but uh so after um so after codeine you um is there overlap between codeine and cum or there is overlap yeah um, yeah, how, played, how did come start? Uh, I met Talia here in Boston in 1988. We were introduced through mutual friends um, who actually suggested that we get together and, and like just get together and jam and get together and play music. Mm-hmm. So a couple of, actually, actually a couple of guys I went to high school with we're in a band with her called Via. And so the four of us got together and played and 
Talia and I like immediately had this like, this like telepathic rapport and uh, it was like, yeah, like first time, yeah, first time I played music with Talia was like, it's like one of the most exciting nights of my life. Completely amazing. And, um, but we didn't really end up doing, we basically, I mean, she was, she was busy. She was doing stuff with Live Skull and with this band Via and, uh, and living in New York, but we would get together and jam a lot. And then this, this is like 88, 89. And then sort of midway through 89, Live Skull broke up or they were taking a break or something. And she was like, yeah, we should put a band together. And um, we couldn't find anybody to play with us. Um, everybody thought we were ne'er-do-wells and losers. And, um, but then eventually we found some people to play with. We, we, I end up, ended up playing in a band with Arthur Johnson and Sean O'Brien, um, both recent transplants from Georgia to Boston. And I, I was brought in by another guy to play with them. And, and I really liked playing with them. And I was like, I, I sort of want to defect with these two. And at that point, Talia kind of reemerged. And I, and I, and I said, I have, I, I got these guys that we should play with. And then, so four of us, four of us started playing and that was it. Huh. Did you do one of those break up the band and then reform the band without the one guy or something? He was, I'll, he I'll was cut this like, out. No, no, no. It, 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 it's not that. It's less Machiavellian than that. But he was, he was, on, he was on the verge of moving out of town anyway. Oh so. yeah, okay. And uh, yeah, um, uh, again, this is in Boston, but Talia is living in New York. Okay. She had just moved back, actually. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah. She she moved down there to basically to sing for Live Skull, and then Live Skull split up. And gotcha. She wanted to get out. She came back here. And how long was uh, Come Around for? About 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. You have like four full lengths? Four albums. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm not Which sure I ever album? saw you guys. I don't think you ever came through Rochester. Nope. No. Definitely not. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> did. Not, not, around that time, it was kind of sparse. So we'd, we'd go to like, we would drive down to New York to see you know, CMJ. So get a lot of shows in all at once and stuff like that. I think I only played Rochester once at a uh, bug jar. Yeah. What group? The new year? Mm. No, mm. no, the bed, bedhead played there, I think, but I don't think the new year ever played there. I feel oh. like I played there. I feel like I played there with the Willard grad conspiracy actually. And, mm. and I, and I wasn't even really like a touring member of that band. I, I, I played on some of their records it was it was just sort of a loose collective here in Boston, but I, I can't I can't remember. <laughs> Too many shows. I, I can use no I can usually remember these things, but I'm I'm it's hazy on the bug jar. Sorry. Yeah, they just they're still going. That's great. It's, it's been That's uh, really only two groups of owners the whole time it's been around. Man, that's incredible. Yeah, I thought for sure when it got bought years and years ago that it was going to turn into a sports bar, but it didn't somehow. <laughs> it's good. 
So, uh, so it comes going on for like 10 years. Uh, you're playing Pullman probably happened in that time frame, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Pullman so. was, uh, kind of a side project ish or. Yeah. Um, it was just, um, I was friends with Bundy Brown and, um, I met Bundy when he was in Vastro and Codeine and Vastro toured Europe together. And Bundy and I really hit it off as, as friends. And at one point I, I asked him, he played bass on one of the Come records. And, um, and then a couple of years later, he just, he was very, he was, he was playing in Tortoise or maybe he had just left Tortoise, but um, he was, he was doing a lot of, doing a lot of stuff on Thrill Jockey and in a very declarative way, he wrote to me and he was like, me and you and Curtis Harvey and Doug McCombs are going to make an acoustic guitar album. Uh, and he was just kind of like very matter of fact about it. And I didn't own an acoustic guitar at the time. <laughs> and uh, I had, was not, was not on my radar at all but i was like okay so i bought this nylon string guitar when Com was in spain at one point and came back and and we all met up in chicago and made the first record it was it was incredibly easy and fun album to make and um that that first record in, in particular was it was uh very successful like it, it sold a lot with us not having to well, we didn't play any shows we didn't do any interviews just the record sold a ton it was across the board all of our parents favorite album of anything <laughs> any of us had ever done and uh it was cool so we did that and then second record we didn't want to just do the same record again so we asked tim barnes to play drums on it and that was cool as well we did we did one little well we started one little tour where we played we played in boston on september 9th hmm. we played manhattan on september 10th we were supposed to play in brooklyn on september 11th but something happened that morning which Mm -hmm. stopped that tour right in its tracks oh. um so then we rebooked that tour for like a year later or something so we, we we just we only did like one little tour um and we've spent almost the last 20 years saying when are we going to get together and make pullman three <laughs> so it's, you should I, do it totally I, I think we should too but um yeah it's it's Seems like it's been harder and harder to organize people to do that. You say it was your parent, all of your parents' favorite records. So I used to drag my coworkers. We we were like kind of tight. We were all software guys, and we loved eating lunch because we're fat software guys. And um, I'd drive them to the record store on Fridays, and they'd watch me buy way too many CDs and stuff. And so I had I always had all this music in the car and back at the office in my cube and. I would play them stuff, you know, and they'd be like, what the hell? Like, and it wasn't really that weird, but to them it was weird. Cause they were listening to like, you know, Dave Matthews and stuff or whatever. Right. Um, 
that's probably pre Dave Matthews, but mm-hmm. the Pullman records were their favorites. Oh, <laughs> they, wow. had, they had multiple guys went out and bought those CDs and they were like psyched. They loved it. Um, that's and then, and then I started trying to weave, I weaved, I started weaving in like tortoise and things like that, like some peripheral stuff, um, right. which I got, but yeah, I mean, I remember when that record came out, I was kind of like, wow, that's a super group. I mean, that's why, you know, uh, there was, you know, a lot of named references that were, uh, you know, Bundy, I knew from, you know, I was listening to Bastro and he was in the very early Gastadol Soul, I think that first yes, thing maybe i think so um yeah and then tortoise of course and was rex before pullman right or at the same time uh, uh, i think rex was before pullman yeah, yeah yeah so this is the early 2000s um yeah. what was the next kind of band that you kind of got in or were you doing were you doing solo stuff at this point too or yeah well so what happened was um, I was doing some of that, you know, like Calm was, Calm kind of went on hiatus for a while. And then I think around 2001, we, we just said, okay, like, like the band's over. Like, um, and I, and I was, I was writing music that I didn't, I didn't know what it was going to be. And, and eventually I was like, I, I think, I think this is going to be a solo album, um, which I was very, I don't know. I, I had a. Lot, I think I had a lot of confidence issues or something. I, I just, it was. It was hard for me to imagine making. This. It seemed like a very presumptuous thing to make a solo <laughs> record. You know, not not like half the planet doesn't do that every day. But, um, but I, I eventually got the nerve up to make this record, and so made this record. And I was playing with the New Year, and. Our first album came, so the first New Year album came out, and my first solo album came out, and I was was had started playing with Evan Dando, and, and was and was playing like doing a lot of stuff with him, and so this is like 2002, and I that was when I was like I'm gonna quit my job and just do music full time, and so at that point I was I was working in a record store full time and. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, and I'd never, I mean, I'd, I'd always had jobs, like, when I was playing Calm, Cody, and everything else, mm-hmm. mo- mostly in, uh, restaurant and food service work, but this was, this was like, okay, I, I'm just totally going for it, I'm just gonna see, see if I can do this, just because I was so busy at that point that I, I couldn't actually hold a job anymore, um, because of, because of touring commitments, and so that's, so I just kind of went for it at that point, and which was definitely like a a, a change in, you know, like, I don't, how am I, can I really, can I really make a living playing music? Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's what I've been basically been, been doing since then. Um, you know, made a lot of solo records, um, did some film scoring. Um, did stuff with the new year, um, formed a couple other bands, um, kept playing with Evan and, 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 and a bunch of different, you know, sort of worked as an accompanist to other people, you know, like I played with Thurston Moore for a while and I, I did 
I did some records with Steve Wynn and, and a lot of touring with them. Um, I did a couple of records with the Spanish singer Christina Rosenvinga and um, some really great music with her. Toured with Reese Chatham and started this band, the Martha's Vineyard Fairies, a while back with my friends Bob Weston and Elijah Wiesner. And uh, got this new, fairly new band called Charnel Ground with Kid Millions. We just have, we have one album, me and Kid Millions and James McNew. But then he didn't want to do anything after the album. So, so Doug McCombs is now the bass player on that band. Okay. Kids from Oneida, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oneida used to play up here every month (laughs) for a while. Like they were, I swear those guys were from Rochester at one point. Cause, and they got to know a lot of people in town and hang out and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think, I think that's correct. But uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I just kind of, I just kind of went on this trajectory. I feel like from, from like 2002 onwards. How did, um, uh, yeah. How did you hook up with the new year guys? Were they, did they move to the East coast? Yeah. Matt, right. Out of Texas at some point. Well, Matt, or some of them did. Matt Cadayan lived in Boston for a while. Oh, okay. And, and was teaching at Harvard. And um, first time the Cum played in Texas, uh, uh, Bedhead opened for us in Fort Worth, and and we just thought they were amazing. Did uh, you know of them before that? No, they had just put out their first seven inch like that week or something, and. Um, so they were they were a brand new band and we were like these guys are fucking amazing so we asked them to come up and play some shows with us in in boston and new york and then they started making albums and so we you know i, I kept abreast with one another sort of through the duration of both of those bands and around nine, i guess i think around I guess it was 1998, both Come and Bedhead like put out what would be their last albums. And both went on these like totally like soul crushing tour, tour. You know, that we came back just like shattered. And uh, Matt came back and he was like, yeah, Bedhead's breaking up and Bubba and I want to do something, want to do something new and want to know if he would want to be involved in it. So, um so for a while it was just matt and i playing together here in boston and bubble was sending tapes and then bubble was still back in texas or yes okay that was was, that's that's always how it's been you know it's been um bubba being in texas me being in boston matt being here he's near me now i think he lives in the finger lakes area yeah 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 Yeah, a couple years ago i was reading something. It might've been an interview with him. And he mentioned teaching at the school, like 20 minutes from here. I'm like, what? Like, yeah, no idea. Yeah. yeah Not he's, that he's, you know, it's, I don't think he's playing out or anything like that. So there's no way I don't I'll know so. that, but no, I don't think so. No, he's been there for a while. That's interesting. The first time um, I heard bedhead, I bought uh, what life, what fun life was right. The first yeah. LP. I think I bought it blindly. Cause it was on, uh, I, trans syndicate right i was kind of buying everything on that label at the time yeah i bought it had no idea who they were put it on and 
I was floored by it. Kind of like it, that's not, it's an amazing record. Yeah, it really amazing album. It kind of reminded me of coding, not sounding wise, but the the patience and space of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like they'll do something and not put in fills and right. You know I mean, and then and then a little change happens, and it's the biggest change in the world because yes. nothing yes. changed to that point. And um, I, I I I put out a zine at that point, some crappy zine, and I think I always I used to describe that record and Bedhead as if Seam was covering coding songs, <laughs> and that's how I, you know, because it had like it had that slowness of it, but it had that little popness of Seam. Um, just tasteful little, I don't know. It's, it's probably a dumb comparison, but in my head, that's what it, at the time, you know, that's kind of what I thought of bedhead to try to fit them into my, you know, noggin. And then, yeah, they played, I think they played the bug jar once. Okay. Um, and luckily people were quiet. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I, I'd get pissed off. I saw well, Cody, I saw Cody in once, but after, after you left the band, I saw Codeine in Buffalo and they were opening for like pavement. So if everyone was there to see pavement and the sound guy had Codeine quiet. And I'm like, I wanted them, I wanted it to be like floored with volume. And I kept getting close to the stage. It wasn't, and everyone was talking. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of delicacy in the coding music, but it's also supposed to be totally crushing. So yeah. It's, <laughs> is the new year technically still together i don't I know what i heard oh you know <laughs> I, I i don't know really i mean it's um you would have to ask you'd have to ask my oh. <laughs> that's it's really it's really their their baby uh so if they if they say it's still it's still extant then it is. Okay. um i mean they they also they did a couple of records in a new band with uh will johnson and david bazan called overseas yeah yeah maybe maybe it was an overseas record that i saw i heard that there was another yeah did the did the second one come out i don't know if the second one came out yet or not yes maybe (laughs) (laughs) i can't keep up i hear you um how did how did you hook up with uh is it reese or rice reese reese Reese. yeah how'd you hook up with him um he's a new york guy right he's he's lived in paris for the last 30 years i think oh okay but um i think it was that i was friends with um i was really really good friends with this woman, Holly Anderson, who was married to a guy named Jonathan Kane. And Jonathan had this thing, had this group called February. Um, and, and Jonathan had played off and on with Reese over the years. And I guess Reese wanted to come over and, and do a little tour, like from like New York down to Austin for South by Southwest. And wanted to do a tour like performing De Donagotter, which is which is really like his his sort of opus mm-hmm. um, of 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 like very composed kind of rock music, 
and then also things like guitar trio, which is you know like sort of one chord for half an hour or whatever. Um, so I don't know. Somehow it came together that it was going to be Jonathan Cain's band February plus a couple other people, which which ended up being me and Doug McCombs actually. Oh okay. Um, so I think it was six guitar players and bass and drums and Reese. And um, we did a, we could, we played the Donegatter and guitar trio every night. And uh, Tony Conrad opened and it was insane. It was, it was so exciting. It was, it was so amazing. I, I really um, like one of the, one of the, one of my favorite weeks of my life was, was playing that, playing that music and, and, and getting to see Tony play every night was, was just like. Tony played solo or? Yeah. Yeah, he'd play, he'd play solo like behind a screen so that you, yep. you just had this silhouette of him that was like 100 feet high, just like playing a D for like an hour. Just, like, just amazing. So cool. Um, and I, I did one other, one other, I played a couple other gigs with Reese after that. I played a thing with him in Boston and then I did a 200 guitar thing with him at Lincoln Center. The rehearsals especially were, were great. The performance, performance was cool, but the rehearsals were really like, just because the sound, because it was indoor, rehearsals were indoors and the show was outdoors. Oh, okay. But, and I think that sort of acoustically, it, it wasn't nearly as intense as it was in, indoors, but mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm a big Reese fan. I think he's amazing. Yeah, I came across this stuff with the Table of the Elements putting out, you know, that box set. And Jonathan Cain has uh, yep. work on there too, yeah, so... Yeah. That label did a lot to uh, inform me of that. And even Tony Conrad, the first Tony Conrad I heard was uh, they uh, put out Slapping Pythagoras. Yep. And I read the liner notes to that and I couldn't tell if it was a joke or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm reading it cause it's like super academic, but it's also like, I'm like, it's a tongue in cheek. And, uh, you know, yeah. now reading more about Pythagoras. I'm like, Oh no, he was on the ball. Um, and then, yeah, we got to know, not know, but like I met Tony a bunch of times cause he was out in Buffalo. Uh, so we saw him play a few times in Buffalo one time at like Gasadil soul and, um, some other shows. And then he came out here and played the bug jar. <laughs> I was nervous. I was intimidated and he was like total, he was just busting everyone's ass and it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Super nice guy. <clears throat> Yeah, I was I was really um, I was really intimidated of him when we were touring together. I just I just thought he was too big a genius. To, yeah, you know, too much. I ended up uh, during that time. I ended up meeting multiple people uh, who took him uh, for classes because he taught at Buff State or UB. I always forget which one. Um, he taught like a film history class and avant garde film. I think he was he was really fun though. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, and a friend of mine became his, uh, like, an assistant. So he was helping, um, like, archive stuff and things like that. I've got these amazing photos I took of him. We, we played in this town that was, wasn't the birthplace of Elvis, but I guess, I don't know, some historic Elvis concert happened in this town. It was, I don't know, somewhere in the south. And um, so they had this life-size statue on a huge pedestal. In the, in the town square and Tony just climbed up and started humping and groping this thing and 
So I've got all these pictures of of Tony up on this up on this pedestal humping Elvis. He he was awesome. He was really great. Um, how uh, so? Yeah, the soundtrack work you've been doing. How how has that uh, happened? Um, are people approaching you? Like, how'd you get in? Uh, how'd you get into that? Even like, just um, I have a friend, this guy Roddy Bagawa, who's uh, he's a film teacher in New Jersey, and um, he's just a super cool uh, former LA punk rocker. And he asked me, he just asked me to, he said, he, I, he's, he's like, I'm making a movie and I, and I want you to do the music for it. And I was like, okay, and I don't know, I don't know how to do that. And he was like, well, just do whatever you want. And I was like, okay. And, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I spent like a month just watching the movie and, and recording mostly electric guitar stuff. And I got back to him and I said, so I wrote this song, I think it'd be good in this scene. I got other song i think it'd be good in this scene and he was like yeah cool and then i i went to go see the movie and it was like he put this he put the songs in like all these different scenes and he had had like other things were like he'd have both he'd have like two or three of the things playing at the same time and i was like what the fuck you know like is so and and then subsequently basically people have approached me um so people always know what my stuff sounds like and 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 i mean and what's been nice is some people have come to me because they heard my music in a movie and they they thought that, that was cool mm -hmm. came at came at it from that perspective but but yeah i mean that's 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 like one end of the film scoring thing and then i've also done movies where you know the director was like i want a theme song and i want you know six variations on that theme song and then like you know like the chord has to change structure, like when when the door opens, and you know, like like. Oh yeah, yeah, real synced up kind of. Very very synced up. So I, I've I've done different combinations of approaches, and I, I really love it. I I just I I don't I I haven't been very good about figuring out how to crack open that market or to to generate more work in it. I, I think I think there was a point where I was I was trying to hustle it more than I have been. Um, so I haven't done one in a couple of years, um, but I, I would certainly welcome doing more mm -hmm. in the future. I, I really like doing it. It's really fun. Yeah, I've had uh, people use pieces of my music and things, but it was stuff like uh, not big movies. <laughs> I mean, that sounded way bigger than it was, um, but it was like stuff that was just recorded and they were like, Oh, that'd be cool for this thing. And I'm like, yeah, right. And they just go and edit it themselves. Yeah. I was wondering like how it works. Like, do you get a final edit of at least the scene or they just like blindly ask you for music and then they put, and it sounds like it's a combination of kind of all that. Right. Um, it's usually, usually the movie's done and it, Oh, it I, is like yeah, edited I, and everything uh, or close. Right, Close. like, yeah. So, um, and I think that's fairly typical. That the music is kind of is one of the last things that goes into it. Okay. So, yeah, the the movie is usually done, and then it's great if people can be kind of when the directors are sort of clear about what they want, and or um, 
if they're open to me trying things out or, or whatever. I don't know. I've, I've done a couple of movies with uh, this couple, Julia Halperin and Jason Cortland. Did a movie for them called Now Forager and another one called Barracuda. And, and those were, were really um, terrific to work on. And, and I, I hope I can do more work with them in the future. They were great to work with. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, do you approach that differently from, uh, I mean, you know, sometimes they give you a direction of uh, maybe a theme. Um, I don't know if they do or not. How, how different is that than sitting down and going, Oh, I'm going to work on a solo record. Um, it's really different. I mean, it's on the one hand, it's, um, I feel like I'm serving someone else's vision. So whatever they really want uh, is, is, is what, is what counts. And I think too, that the other, the other main thing is, is that the music that I do doesn't, it doesn't need to stand by itself. It, it only, the only thing that really matters is, is how it works in the, in the film. Hmm. So, um, and so sometimes that's like, that's one nylon string guitar and, uh, and an egg. And sometimes that's like one note on a synthesizer. And sometimes it's just like rubbing a plastic mic on, you know, plastic bag on a contact mic. And, you know, it's like, I mean, it's like, it's, um, I mean, I have released, I've done, you know, like, albums of of the you know the the music that i did for a movie but Mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't need to stand on its own all it all it needs to do is is be effective in the movie itself Mm -hmm. gotcha i think you should put yourself out there more often i look at like um you know in the last decade well maybe less than a decade my my so my daughter's in film school now uh she's finished her first year and she started you know, getting into films a lot more and it's like, Oh, you just got to watch this, got to watch this. And I'll be watching it. And I'm like, man, this music sounds really familiar. And then I'll look and it'll be like some underground electronic guy. I listen to like Hacks and cloak did soundtracks to, you know, like, uh, midsummer, Do you okay. know, midsummer. Yeah. Yeah. So like these, these, you know, what I consider kind of underground electronic guys. Right. Doing these soundtrack work. And I'm like, where are these guys coming from? How'd that happen? You know, they probably knew somebody and someone's like, oh, that music. Um, but yeah, it seems uh, it seems more approachable nowadays than, uh, you know, I never used to years ago. I never used to hear, uh, you know, a quote, un- underground musician doing full soundtracks, you know, like the yeah. whole soundtrack uh, yeah. as opposed to, you know, a song being used, uh, you yeah. know, as, as sync work or something. But Yeah, well, I mean, especially... Um... Now, well, I'm going to get her name wrong. Uh, Hilder something. I always, I always forget her full last name, but the, the woman who, who did the score for Joker. Oh yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. No. Which, yeah. Say, yeah, exactly. Which, um, and, and I mean, her, her work is great. And I, and I thought her score for that, for that movie was, was, was really great. And I think she was maybe the first woman to win the Oscar. Yeah. I think she was original score so yeah i mean it's it's yeah there's there's definitely things are opening up in 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 lots of ways yeah you're right i should put myself (laughs) let's see 
I like Johnny Greenwood's work. Yeah, and, I, his... and, I'm, and I'm not a Radiohead fan, like at all. But I ditto. Yeah, I think uh, he's. Still we be blood. His score. I didn't like that movie, but I thought his his score for that movie was was awesome. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen a few few other movies that I thought I thought his stuff was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, that dude Atticus Ross. He's oh really yeah, good. with Trent Reznor. Yeah, I don't think Trent Reznor actually really does the good stuff. I think it's I think it's Atticus Ross. <laughs> I love their soundtracks. They do. They've they've done some amazing work. Yeah, I. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. We just watched Social Network again. My son wanted to watch it, so we watched it there night. And the soundtrack's great. Their I use just, of they get themes that come back a lot, and but they're yeah. varied, and you know, and they're a little their tensions different and stuff. Yeah. Oh, they did uh, the Watchmen too, which was I'm a comic nerd, so okay. Watchmen uh, the series that HBO did. I don't know if you huh? saw that or not. Um, how uh, so? This is kind of a random one. Uh, how did you hook up with Riley Walker um, and put out that American ta- American Tapes LP? Uh, again, a long time ago. Some, someone else's bright idea. Um, I mean, I I knew John Olson and. I'd certainly bought a lot of Wolf Eyes stuff. Certainly bought a, certainly sent a lot of money to American Tapes over, <laughs> over a certain period of time. Um, that was his idea, and and I I was I I didn't know Riley's work at all at that point. And, I, and was that's a really early record, I think, for his very, for him, right? Yeah, he must have been totally. pretty young when he did totally. that. Yeah, and, and so John wrote, and he was like. So I think you and Riley Walker should make a one-sided record that can be played at either 33 or 45. I was like, okay. I was like, I think I know who Riley Walker is. <laughs> and so I wrote to him and I was like, Riley, we're making a record. And, um, and I said, I didn't know what to do. So I was like, I'm going to record like, I'm going to record a bunch of two minute things. And I, and I was, I was, I was like making a bunch of noise tapes at the time and stuff like that. And so I sent him some electric guitar stuff and some, you know, microphone feedback and, you know, just just like two minute pieces of stuff. And he took all that stuff and, and made, made this thing, which, and and I, I, I think he did a really amazing job with it. Wow. I was, yeah. I was, I was, I was, was he in Chicago or something or he was in Chicago at that point. Yeah. Um, and I've, and I've gotten to know him a little bit since then, but, um, yeah, it was a completely random. <laughs> yeah. He's living, uh, out by you ish now. He's up in, uh, like Burlington, I think, or outside yes. of Burlington. Yeah. 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 He was, he was. He was in Massachusetts briefly, but he's in mm-hmm. Vermont now. Yeah. Yeah. A good friend of mine was ap- happened to be going on their way on their way to like a family cottage in New Hampshire, I think. And they stopped in Burlington for a night and he kind of looked through the paper just to see. He's like, yeah, you never know. Somebody might be playing. And he's like, oh, Riley Walker's playing. So I went to see him at some live, like outdoor, total, normal, like happy hour. You know, it was like a bandstand set up. Um, wow. 
and Riley like did these crazy long ragas. Uh, yeah, yeah I kind of blew I saw, people away. I saw Riley do this show in Boston. It's maybe like two months before the pandemic began, and he was playing solo, and I think it was a lot of new stuff, and he was just I just I just was completely knocked out by his his show and by his guitar playing in particular. Mm-hmm. He's playing electric guitar, singing some of the time, but others, I mean, just these kind of long, just knocked me out. I, I, thought, I thought his playing was, was really incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was supposed to play here last summer, and that was probably the band. I think the band was going to play at a, some beer, uh, like brewery in town. Somehow it got booked. He doesn't know how it got booked because it's an odd venue for like for him to be playing. It, it made sense, you know, because like the owner who books the shows is into like jam bands. Right. So I could see there's the overlap. Like he's more of a dead and fish kind of jam bands, but I could see there's an overlap. Right. Um, uh, but then it never happened because it was yeah, shut down and stuff like that. But, um. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, I end up doing. He uh, did a track for Double uh, LP comp that I did. But okay. I feel like I feel like an, a complete asshole for not asking you for a track because it was all guitar players. So I apologize. So many guitar players. <laughs> I know. It's easy, it's easy to easy to get lost in the <laughs> in the shuffle. The record was like coming out. Uh, I don't know if you know Eric Arn. Um, he lives in. Uh, Austria, but he's a Texas guy. He was in Primordial Undermind. I don't know if you remember that band from back in the day. Yeah, Yeah, so he was in town and I've known him for years and I'm like, dude, I forgot to ask you. Like, And I asked too many people and it grew into a double LP and was wicked expensive to do, of course, because it went into a double LP. But anyway, anyway, there'll be volume two. I'll ask you for volume two. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But it'll be, it'll just be one song. Just one song, yeah, comp, yeah, yeah. Oh, just <laughs> just your one-sided LP. It's like just right. one three-minute track for just, just one like a, like a two-minute song. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, you have a couple. You have a couple of records on VDSQ, right? If I'm not mistaken, I have a number of records on VDSQ. Yeah, yeah. yeah how'd you hook up with those guys? Well, it's Gerard Cosloy. So um, I I met him when um, doing records would come with Matador. So, um, so I did all the record and, and Gerard was really the guy that, that we worked with the most um, with Matador. And so when I put out my first solo record, um, Red Cities, he was coming out on Atavistic uh, in Chicago, and then there was a label here in Boston called Kimchi that did the vinyl of it. And Gerard was living in London at the time, and wanted to. He he just started this label, basically, to to provide um, a label overseas for uh artists he knew in the u.s who had something happening in the u.s but didn't have anything happen overseas so initially that was it was me silkworm spoon joel phelps 
um, and his wife at the time, Sally Crew. So that, that was, that was really, I think that was really the impetus for that label was, was to, to provide this cluster of people. With- oh, we might be talking about two different labels here. Okay. One, two, um, two. So Vin, Vin Du Select Quality, the uh, California that- band. I, I probably said it too quickly and you thought I said 12XU. I, uh, I is that his new label? That's his 12XU? Is that? Yeah. Sorry. That's Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going getting to a point where Gerard introduced you to the VDSQ guys, like oh, the oh, thin wrist I'm sorry. I'm sorry. black editions guys. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, no, that's a good point though. Like, uh, so Gerard is running, you know, he's down in Texas, right? He's in Austin now. Uh, yeah. Is he involved in Matador anymore or no? He is. Yeah. He is. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's still, he's still one of the partners there. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was never sure uh, if that was the case or not. Um, I mean, it's amazing that that label is still doing what it does. Yeah. Right. Um, all these years. Yeah. And now they're reissuing records that are what they do like 30th anniversary editions. I'm like, wow, we're old. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's crazy. So yeah, your late, your latest one is on 12 XU, right? Yep. And then, uh, you put out the last one was on VDSQ. Yes. Yeah, right? so I've done two records with VDSQ. Yeah, okay. Um, One was so the, the acoustic solo series or no? Yep. Well, it yep. was, yeah. Yeah, so I met, so that label is run by a guy named Steve Lowenthal. And I met Steve at the hospital records store in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And if you're familiar with hospital productions. Yep, yep, yeah. yeah. So... Was this the tiny one that you had to crawl downstairs and yes, get into? Yes, yeah. Yeah. yes. You had to go in this hole. <laughs> like, like move your shoulder sideways to get down. You had to go to the back of this reggae store and go down this hole into the, in, on, a, on a little ladder into this teeny little place, which I, I had just moved to Brooklyn and, and it, that place like instantly became like my favorite place in New York to go. Um, and Steve was hanging out there a lot. Steve, Steve and Dominic are like best friends. Oh, okay. I, I don't know how those guys met or became best friends, but they've, they've been best friends forever. And Steve was like, he was a big cum fan, a big coding fan. And, and so I just used to see him there a lot. And he, he worked at the store and, and stuff like that. And he said to me one thing, he's like, you should really make, he'd heard some acoustic stuff that I'd done. He was like, you should really make like, like a whole, like a solo acoustic record. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I've got a whole acoustic record in me, but then I made this record called Canaris, which was like half regular acoustic guitar and then half like acoustic guitar plugged into a bunch of amps and like feeding back for like 20 minutes. And, um, but then about a year later, he said, you know, I'm actually I'm going to start a label and it's it's going to be all acoustic guitar music. And you have to have like the cover has to have a picture of the guitar that you made the record with. And he's like, it's going to be like very like it's going to have this very specific look and identity and, and everything else. And I was like, OK. And then with that even thing, I was like, I'll do mine on 12 string. And, you know, it's like I didn't have a 12 string and I hadn't played one in many years and. Um, but then I ended up, I made 
made an album for him on 12's train, which, which was really fun to do. And then, and then a few years later, he came back to me and he said, I have an assignment for you. I said, okay. Now, I, I like getting assignments. I, I, think, it's, I think it's fun. Um, he said, you know, those nights where like you're sitting around with a friend and, and you're just listening to records and like you're pulling out your favorite records. And, and then it finally gets to be like three in the morning and you're like, okay, we're listening to one more record and go to sleep. He said, I want you to make that record. And I was like, oh man, this is like the greatest assignment ever. And I spent a couple of years just thinking about it. And then I, um, and then finally, I, I was living in Seattle at, at the time. And we have a mutual friend named Greg Kelly, who had also moved out there. It's a really great trumpet player. And Steve said, you got to get Greg. When, whenever you actually get, to, get around to making this record, you, you got to get Greg on it. It's really, I think it's really important that you have Greg on this record. And, and Greg generally is, is known as, as sort of a sort of an avant-garde player. Is he uh, uh, originally a Boston area yeah. guy? Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, I, think he, he, I think he might have played in town. There, the various groups of free improv Boston guys would come through town. Okay. At times, yeah. yeah he's, he's back here now, actually. Okay. And... Um, so I, four years ago, I was about to move back to Boston. And I was like, I got to get in the studio with Greg before I leave. So I wanted to record with him and I wanted to record with Laurie Goldston, uh, this cellist out there who I've been doing some playing with. So I, I started the record out there. Like I went, like I went in the studio with, with both of them, like literally like, like the day before I moved back to Boston. So I, I, did, I did some songs with them and then I moved back here and then I finished the record. That's awesome. Those, they're all great records too. Thank you. I really dig. Uh, yeah, I kind of, I think I lost track of you for a little bit um, release wise. And then uh, that solo acoustic, I started tracking down the various solo acoustic series records. Okay. Uh, and I, and I saw yours. Yeah. So I picked that up. I picked, yeah, I picked up a lot of those <laughs> on a short time span. I love the idea of those cool. series and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. But that label, that the group of labels that he and there's another guy uh, that runs like black editions and then they both run thin wrist or thin something wrist. like that. Yep. Yeah. Um, putting out just incredible stuff. Um, yeah. Big sucker yeah. for Japanese heavy psych. So yeah. yeah well, they about those projects. They, they bought the entire PSF. Yeah. Catalog. So that's like, it's, I mean, it's a massive undertaking. Yeah. You know, and and of of a label that never released anything on vinyl, right? And these guys are like vital, you know, vinyl fetish. Yeah, none of the, none of. The, I mean, the the solo acoustic things are quote simple packaging, but then everything else, like Black Editions, is just over the top. And you know, Daryl Norrison does a bunch of design work for them, and he just is, he's like, yeah, they just let me do anything. Um, cool. you know yeah, i want to do five cool. spot colors and two you know absolutely layers and stuff and yeah. you know they go for it yeah they're like whatever cool well that's great uh that's uh everything i wanted to talk to you about um do you have anything you want to talk about like what do you well what plans do you have coming up do you have uh 
any well, recordings that are coming out or shows coming up? Uh, let me think. I, I made a recording with my friend Jeff Barsky. We have sort of a sort of experimental guitar duo called Sunsets of the Sea. And we did one cassette several years ago, and we have another one coming out on tape, tape Drift. Should be out at some point this year. And um, Com has a bunch of reissues that are going to start to come out. Oh, we, cool. we signed like a whole new deal with Fire Records in England. Mm -hmm. and so our second album, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, is coming out in October as a double album with some unreleased stuff and B-sides and things like that. And then there's going to be an album of Peel Sessions coming out next spring. And were those ever released previously? Or no, no, they, were just... they weren't. And and they got a guy to kind of remaster those recordings to the point where we all actually like them, you know, which, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, and there's going to be uh, a previously unreleased in its entirety uh, Codian album coming out. Like basically we recorded, we recorded, we recorded our second album and scrapped it. And uh. some of those recordings came out on the box set we yeah. did with Numero in 2012, but like the entire album as a, as a piece hasn't come out, but gotcha. it's quite, that will be coming out on Numero next year. But there's there's tracks on that that weren't in the box set? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, That's another label that kills it. <laughs> With yeah. Their so box set. Yeah, that and the Bedhead box sets are just great. The writing, the booklets yeah, um, are amazingly put together. Yeah. Um, besides that, I don't, I don't have – I mean, those things are happening – I don't know. Was, I mean, like the the my new album Puritan and the new Martha's Vineyard Fairies records. Those are kind of those are like my big albums for the year. Mm -hmm. um, I've been collaborating with an arts group in based in Stavanger, Norway, uh, called Finley Sandsmark. We've been working together on a multimedia production over the last few years, and. So far, all of the performances have been in Norway, but we are finally scheduled to bring it to America, and we'll be performing this show in Kansas City in November. Wow. So we're psyched about that. That's coming up. How big of a group is that? Uh, it's about eight people involved with it. I mean, it's... it's like video and dance, or I should say video and movement and music and sound and text. Hmm. And um, um, what uh, are there uh, Norwegian musicians involved that like people would know about, or well, I'm sure people know the, about, them, but <laughs> probably, probably not the people who know about. Yeah, most of the Norwegian guys I know are noise guys. Yeah, one one of them is. Okay. One of them is uh, this guy, Paul Oslo. But, um, um, 
Yeah, so I mean, I, and, and I've got like a few recording projects coming up and I, I, I probably shouldn't talk about them until the recordings are actually done. Yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, a couple of things coming up that I'm, that I'm excited about. Cool. Solo, those are uh, collaborative projects? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I want to thank you for uh, being on the podcast. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for yeah, inviting it was, me. Yeah, it was really great meeting you. I've been a fan uh, since... 91. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it. Cool. So, yeah, that was a great interview. I had a great time talking to Chris. I want to thank him again for um, giving me his time and, uh, and attention. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, what you're hearing in the background here is um, a, a piece he did. It's on the Tape Drift Records out of Albany. It's a CD. It's two long tracks. It's music for Peter Hutton. Uh, recorded live at uh, Northwest Film Forum in Seattle, Washington. The track you're hearing here is, oh, I'm going to butcher it, Skagak. Fordor Skagaf Jordor maybe I apologize at the beginning of the uh, set before the interview you heard uh, a couple tracks uh, Codeine with their song Pickup Song from Frigid Stars that was for their first LP on Sub Pop back in 91 I believe and then a uh, long solo piece of Chris's called The Fields Part 2 that's from his LP Red Cities on 12XU and then you heard uh, Come doing Mercury Falls <clears throat> from their release Don't Ask, Don't Tell on Matador. All the Come uh, releases, I think, have been getting reissued on vinyl um, recently. I'm not sure if all of them are out right now, um, but by the time you listen to this, a few of them, are, I'm, I'm sure, are out and available. As part of Mat- I think it's part of Matador's uh, big anniversary thing where they're reissuing a lot of old records from like 25 years ago. Old, quote, old. So we're going to listen to a few more pieces after this that feature Chris. I'm going to play some solo work of his on the uh, VDSQ label, Vindu Select Quality. Um, I'm going to play a, uh, a newer band. I think it's newer. That he's in called uh, Charnel Ground or Carnal Ground. I never know how to say that word. This is on 12XU as well. It features... Uh, Chris on guitar, James McNew on bass and organ, and Kid Millions on drums. And then I'm going to play a track from the new year where uh, Chris does a lot of drumming duties. Uh, They're one of my favorite bands, post-Bedhead group. So thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the uh, songs I pick, and uh, we'll see you next time. Like I said, I have a uh, Tom Lacks interview coming Uh, but probably a music show before that, and I'm going to try to get more onto a regular schedule, so hopefully I can can do that. All right, thanks again. Uh, You can go to mixcloud.com slash carbonjotunis to catch this, uh, as well as um, Apple and Spotify podcasts called My Teeth Need Attention. 
Just so you know, the Mixcloud account has both this and my radio show kind of all mixed together, but they're named appropriately so you can figure out what what's what. Um, and if you go to uh, myteethneyattention.com, there's links to all of those and links to a Instagram account as well of the same name. All right, thanks again and uh, enjoy, and we'll see you next time around. All right, bye.
The sun 